hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here, especially on this holiday weekend. I know we probably have a lot of people traveling, but we're glad you're here. And we have family right now meeting out at our Stone Canyon campus. So if you would put your hands together, welcome them to our study of God's Word today. Well, this is the time of year when a lot of students start to think about their future, and it's not just graduating high school and college age students, it's also students much younger than that. My son Alex, he finished his first year of preschool just a couple weeks ago, and they asked him the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And in fact, his teacher put together this little book, and it was a book of pictures and quotes from his first year to try to document his experiences, and I've got... A picture up on the screen of what he said he wanted to be when he grew up. He wanted to take a look at it. He says, when I grow up, I want to be a basketball player. That is my son right there. That is my boy. I'm proud of him for that. I hope he does grow up to be a professional basketball player. That would be awesome. I wouldn't have to worry about retirement then. So I hope he does grow up to do that. But we know that's you know, a preschool dream, a kid's dream. We get that. And I dare say that if you were asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, when you were like in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, that answer probably changed as you got a little bit older. But I love listening to kids' answers, especially when they're asked that question. So I found some clips online of some kids who were asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And take a look at their answers. What do you want to be when you grow up? A beef hunter. A what? A beef hunter. A beef hunter. Uh-huh. What does a beef hunter do? Uh, kills beef. Yeah? Hides up in the tree because, because, because the beef crawls. They do. So they don't see us. Okay. Hello. Hello. What are you going to be when you grow up? Mm, Santa and a flying monkey and a bee also. What do you want to be when you grow up, Maxwell? Paleontologist. Very good. What do you want to be when you grow up, Sydney? A triceratops. <laughs> That's a dinosaur. Then, then you're going to be extinct. Sometimes you'll have to get hit in the face. Well, that's okay, because I'll just dodge them, dodge them all. No, but sometimes you'll get hit. Nuh-uh, because I... <clears throat> because best... Because I'm going to be the best... A be, the best boxer that does ducks all of the boxing. But you got to just be able to take punches in the face sometimes. Well, like... <clears throat> Before they punch me, I'll like go right. Oh, oh my gosh. Are you okay? I want to be this. When I grow up, I want to be a vampire pet. <laughs> I love that last response. I don't want to grow up. I understand that. I'm sure when you were in the first grade, second grade, whatever, and somebody asked you, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? That answer will probably changed as you didn't actually grow up. And so I just want to hear from you guys. If you would, take a moment, turn to somebody sitting next to you, and just share with them when you were a kid what you wanted to be when you grew up. So go ahead and share with somebody sitting next to you. I want to hear your answers.
Okay, that's good. Okay, let's take a break. I know I should not give you guys time to talk. Okay. I heard somebody say a rodeo clown. That's awesome. I love that answer. Whoever that was over there, I heard it. Well, I'm sure that your answer changed over time. Maybe not. My mom, from the time she was a little girl, she wanted to be a nurse, and she wanted to be a nurse all through school, went to college to be a nurse, and she's still a nurse to this day, just a few years away from retiring. So maybe your answer didn't change, but I dare say for most of us, that answer has changed over time. And sometimes people will come up to me and they'll say, Chad, what type of church do you want to serve? What church do you want to be? And they're asking about First Church. What do you want First Church to be. Now, some lead ministers, senior ministers, when you ask them that question, their answer will change over time. They'll point to the latest book that's been published or website that's out there or app, or maybe they'll point to a certain conference and they'll say, that's the type of church that we want to be one day. But that's not how I answer. When someone asks me, what type of church you want First Church to be? I take them to the book of Acts, the book of Acts in our New Testament. Because in Acts, we get a front row seat to the birth and the development of the New Testament church, of Jesus' church. And as you read about the earliest days of the church, I think it's exciting. I think it's exhilarating. Because we see these early Christians literally change the world by carrying out Jesus' mission and work. These first followers, they started with 120 people in an upper room. And then on the day of Pentecost, the day the church began... The church exploded to 3,000 people. And then a few days later, it exploded to 5,000 people. And we read that by the end of the first century, Jesus is being preached all over the known world. The growth of the church was so explosive that within, that within just a few decades, hundreds of thousands of people had become followers of Jesus. And I think as you read through the book of Acts and study the earliest days of the church, you'll see a couple of key themes. The first is explosive growth. I've already talked about that. I mean, the first time the gospel was preached, 3,000 people responded. One sermon, 3,000 people responded, were baptized into Christ. The first time the gospel was ever preached. And then we see churches being planted all over the world, and those churches planted other churches, and those churches planted other churches. Exponential growth. They experienced explosive, impressive growth. And with that growth came incredible influence. I mean, look at the first leaders of the church. These weren't guys that you would expect to have great cultural influence. I mean, these were poor fishermen. These were social outcasts. These were unpolished guys who came from no-name families. They weren't the guys that you would expect to have great influence, and yet they did. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, one of the political rulers of the day says about these early Christians, the early church, that they were turning the world upside down. They were accused of transforming the world, of transforming culture for the sake of Christ. And those early Christians, they were guilty as charged. This ragtag group of ordinary guys had extraordinary influence on not just Roman culture, but the history of the human race. So what was their secret? Why were they able to have such explosive growth and such incredible influence? Well, I think there were a lot of reasons, but one of the primary reasons was because of their generosity. Their generosity. The earliest Christians lived out a radical, over-the-top brand of generosity that reflected the character of Jesus. Now, 
I know that when some people hear the word generosity in church, they get a little nervous, they reach for their wallets and stuff like that. Hang with me here just a second. In fact, I had some friends a few years ago, they have, they have a little boy who was a toddler at that time, and their little boy swallowed a dime, a coin, you know, and the mom, she freaked out, and she told her husband, let's call 911, and her husband said, no, no, let's not call 911, let's call Chad. And she was just like, why would we call Chad? And he goes, because he's a preacher. He can get money out of anybody. Now, that's not true. That's a joke, by the way. That didn't exactly happen. But I've heard that joke my entire life. And honestly, I'm just going to let you know my heart. I hate that that's what preachers are known for, honestly. I don't like preachers who beg for money. I'm not that guy. I'm not. And so this series called Generous, don't get nervous that it's all about money. I hate to talk about money, honestly. I really do. Because I know how awkward it is. I know how uncomfortable it makes people feel. But I'll tell you what I do love to talk about. I love to talk about Jesus. And our theme here for the past few weeks and our ongoing mission, our mission statement is love Jesus, love like Jesus. And if we're going to be a church that actually loves like Jesus, then we've got to be like him in every way. And the more I get to know Jesus, the more I've realized Jesus isn't greedy. Jesus is generous. Whether it was his time, his love, his comforts, his grace, hope, healing, even his own life, he gave everything he had so that we could have everything we need. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says about himself, For the Son of Man did not come to be saved, but to, I mean, but to be served, excuse me, but to serve, and to give, see that word? And to give his life as a ransom for many. Now Jesus said this right after two of his disciples were arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, you want to be great in God's kingdom? It's not about getting, but it's about giving. Jesus was a giver, not a taker. And as his followers, if we want to be like him, then we should find our greatest joy in serving others. In other words, if we want to be a church that changes the culture by loving like Jesus, then we've got to practice Jesus-like generosity. And I'm not just talking about our money. That's part of it. But this should encompass all of life. But I still know when I say the word generous or generosity, people get nervous. Because in church, there are typically... Two types of hearts. There are hearts that are kind of like this Play-Doh I have. Doctors say the human heart is about the size of your fist, so about that size. And this Play-Doh, it can be stretched and shaped and molded into whatever I want it to be. And there are some hearts in church that are just like this Play-Doh. People offer their hearts to Jesus. They say, Jesus, change me into who you want me to be. Mold me. Make me into who you want me to be. I want to be just like you I want to love like you. I want to be kind like you. I want to have faith that moves mountains. Jesus, I want to be generous like you. I want to be as much like you as I possibly can. Shape me, mold me, make me into who you want me to be. But then there's a second type of heart in the church today. That's a hard heart. A heart of stone. When someone says, Jesus, I don't care what you want, I don't care how you live, I'm going to live the way I want to live. And I think sometimes when people hear the word generosity and they get all nervous in church, it's because 
They don't want to listen to what Jesus has to say. In fact, I've heard people say that anytime there's a series on church that's on money, that they skip. Again, this isn't a series just on money. It's on having a heart like Jesus. And Jesus was generous. So the question is, are we going to listen or not? Because Jesus, he was a giver, not a taker. And I think that's why the early church had such success. I think that's why they grew in such an explosive way. And that's why they had such incredible influence. Because they were living like Jesus in every possible way. And so I think that's why the book of Acts paints this picture of the church as a people who lived generous lives. So if you have your Bibles, look up with me, Acts chapter 4, and we're going to look at a moment in the life of the early church. And this scene that we're going to read about takes place in the earliest, earliest days of the church. And I want you to look at how the early church is described. Verse 32 of Acts chapter 4 says this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles, who were the leaders of the church, they continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. See, when Luke describes the early church, he paints this picture of the church being a community that was defined by this radical, over-the-top brand of generosity. These early followers of Jesus so loved Jesus and so valued the eternal over the temporary that they were willing to make whatever sacrifices were necessary to meet kingdom needs. When there was an opportunity to give, they gave. Generosity wasn't a one-time event or a -a once-a-week thing for the early church. It was just who they were. They were willing to give up what they could have kept for themselves in order to move the mission of Jesus forward. Why? I think, first of all, because they had a high level of trust in Jesus. They knew Jesus' way of life was the best way of life, so they were willing to do whatever he asked of them. But two, they lived with a high sense of calling. They believed Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be, and they believed his mission was so important that they didn't want to hold anything back. Being part of the church wasn't a weekend priority. They wanted to do whatever it took to actually be the good news themselves. And the Bible seems to indicate that their generosity, it wasn't separate from their explosive growth and their incredible influence. In fact, it seems to indicate that it played a key role in their expanding growth and influence throughout the world. I want you to notice in that passage we just read, there are two statements about their generosity. And the first statement says that, they, that no one considered any of their possessions their own. In other words, they realized everything they had was ultimately from God. Everything they had was God's. They were just managers of God's possessions, basically. And then the second statement that's made is that from time to time, people would sell certain property they had, certain possessions they had, and they would use that money for the advancement of the church. And what's interesting is a sandwich between these two statements about the early church of generosity is this verse, verse 33 of Acts chapter 4. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. 
It's the idea that generosity wasn't unrelated to their growth and influence, but it played a key role. It wasn't that the church was growing and the church had influence, and by the way, they were also generous. It was the church was growing and had influence because they were generous. Let me put it this way. Generosity moved their mission forward. And it's no wonder people listened to them. It's no wonder people flocked to the church in its earliest days. Because these early followers of Jesus, they didn't just talk about the good news. Through their generosity, through their kind words, their listening ears, their, the time they offered people, the hospitality they showed, and even the dollars they gave, they were the good news. They didn't just talk about it. They were the good news. And that's why as I read through the New Testament and I studied the early church, I am more and more convinced that when the church practices generosity, we're at our best. When the church practices generosity, we're at our best. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9.13 to the church at Corinth, for your generosity will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. Generosity moves the mission of Jesus forward. It shows the world that we're not just those who talk about Jesus, but we are those who have the heart of Jesus. And when the church practices generosity, we're at our best. But the question we need to ask is, how exactly do we do that? Because generosity, it's always a choice. We're not forced to be generous, obviously. It's always a choice we make. And so what do we need to do to make sure that as a church we're living generous lives? Well, I think we can learn a lot from the example of the early church. And the first thing that I see in Acts chapter 4 is this. We need to be a people who receive gratefully. If you look at verse 33 with me in our passage, it says that the early church continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to what's going on here. The early church didn't take for granted everything that Jesus had done for them, but they continued to keep it in their sights. They continued to remember what Jesus had done for them, and Jesus' sacrifice motivated them. But it wasn't just that they remembered what Jesus had done for them. What Jesus did for them changed them, and they continued to focus on everything he was giving them, everything he was blessing them with. In James 1, verse 17, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from our Heavenly Father. See, when we understand that every good thing we have is from God, it changes our perspective. Guys, I want you to know my heart right now. It took me a while to get this, but when I finally understood it, it changed the way that I live life. Every good thing I have, everything I've been given, I don't deserve I don't deserve any of it. My marriage to Allison, I do not deserve her. And you guys know that. I do not deserve her. Because of my kids, I don't deserve them. The house I live in, the cars that, I, that we own, all the possessions I have, the talents and abilities that God has given me, my job, standing up here before you week in and week out, I don't deserve any of that stuff. And especially my salvation. The fact that I've been forgiven. The fact that I've been able to have this restoration where I'm able to have a relationship with God again. I don't deserve any of that. It's all a gift from God. And yeah, we all have bad days and we all have things that we want that we don't get. But I am way more blessed than I deserve. 
And I dare say the same is true for you. And when I think about all the grace that God has shown me through the years, and I think about the salvation He's given me through His Son, I'm blown away. I don't deserve any of that. So how can I keep taking and taking and taking from God who generously gives to me and then keep all that to myself, whether it be my possessions, whether it be my salvation, how can I keep all that to myself? Isn't that the definition of selfishness? And here's what I've learned. Grace breeds generosity. And today, if you're struggling with being selfish, and I'm there with you at times, and I dare say if I asked us at all of our campuses, raise your hand if you've ever, had, ever been selfish, or if you ever struggled with selfishness, I guarantee you a bunch of hands would go up. Probably every hand would go up, because we all struggle with it at times, right? But if you're struggling right now with selfishness, my advice to you is carve out some time every single day to reflect on what God's done for you, to reflect on all the blessings He's given you, to reflect on the salvation He's given to you through His Son. And I believe the more you understand the grace of God, the more you understand how much He loves you and what He's done for you and continues to do for you, the more you will see a need to show grace to others. So first, we need to be a people who receive gratefully. Number two, we need to be a people who plan wisely. If you look at verses 34 through 35 of Acts chapter 4, it says, From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. See, what I see from those words is that generosity doesn't happen by accident. I want you to notice, it doesn't say that, okay, when they became Christians, they just automatically sold all their stuff and they gave it away for the sake of the kingdom. That's not what it says. It says from time to time, meaning over time. They had a plan. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction and, hey, we don't need to have any possessions anymore. That wasn't it. From time to time, as they were able, they gave what they could give in order to advance the kingdom of God. And so some people sold some of their property. Some sold a lot more than others. Some didn't sell any. Notice this isn't a command. This is just an example that we're given. But from time to time, they were able to give in order to keep the kingdom of God moving forward. Generosity doesn't happen by accident. It's a choice that we make. And God has given all of us our purpose. Our purpose is to help as many people fall in love with Jesus and follow Him as we possibly can. So He expects us to use our lives wisely. Our time, our resources, our conversations, everything. Use it wisely to introduce people to His incredible love. And that means that everything we do Every person we encounter, every place we go, we should see as an open door for ministry. Now, I know when a lot of people hear the word ministry, what they think of is what we do here on Sunday morning or what a preacher does or maybe an activity or program we have associated with the church. When people hear the word ministry, that's what they think of. But ministry is really life for us. Everything we do, every person we encounter, everywhere we go, we should see it as an open door for ministry. Bob Goff is a New York Times bestseller. He's an attorney in Southern California, but he wrote the book Love Does. You've probably heard of it before. And I love what he says about his job as an attorney in, in his book Love Does. Listen to this quote. He said, Some time ago, I stopped thinking about being a lawyer as a career. Instead, I think of it as just a day job. Thinking about work as a day job has made a big difference in the way I approach what I do. It's also helped me not to confuse who I am with what I do. I think about my day job as a great way to fund the things God wants me to do. 
Now when I put on a suit and tie to go take a deposition, I call it fundraising. Fundraising for what God wants him to do. Bob realizes he was put on this earth to serve Christ. And so being attorney was just a way to fund the life that God wants him to live. I love that. See, God wants us to be wise about what he has given us. And, that, and being generous is a choice. And so we need a plan because it's not just going to automatically happen. We need a plan. And let me tell you about the plan that I use. You've probably heard of it before. A lot of people promote this. I use the 10-10-80 plan. I think it's a wise plan. I think it's a biblically sound plan. But it's the 10-10-80 plan, meaning I give 10% automatically of everything that I earn. I give to the church. I give to God. And then I save 10% of everything that I earn for the future. And then I live off 80%. And my goal is that every single year I can live off less and less so that I can give more and I can save more. But that's the plan that I try to live by, the 10-10-80 plan. You've probably heard of that before. Like I said, I think it's a wise plan. It's a biblically sound plan. But it's a plan that allows me to be generous. It's a plan that allows me to increasingly give more. And I hope that you have a plan like that. If not, there's a good example. There's somewhere to start. That's a plan to work toward. But we need to be a people who plan wisely. Number three, I think Acts tells us that we need to be a people who live simply. When you look at verse 32 of our text, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They realized that every material thing they had was temporary. They were living for something more than that. They were living for something eternal. And guys, you know this. The house you live in, the car you drive, your accounts, your investments, it's all temporary. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say that we shouldn't enjoy those things. Not at all. Sometimes preachers will make you feel guilty or embarrassed if you have some stuff. If you have some means or if you're wealthy. There were rich people in the Bible who followed Jesus. There have been wealthy people throughout the history of Christianity that have followed Jesus faithfully. It is not a sin to have some means, to have some wealth, not at all, if that's you. The key is, don't worship it. Instead, use it in order to advance God's kingdom. It's a gift from God. So use it to advance His purposes. Jesus doesn't say, don't enjoy it. He wants us to enjoy the blessings that He's given us, but here's the thing, don't worship it. And when I say that, I'm preaching at myself. I'm not wealthy at all. But I have a tendency to steer towards materialism. That's the culture we live in. And so something I do to help me out with this, I keep on my key ring, this key right here, if you can see it. I've taken it off to show you guys. But it's a blank key. It doesn't work any lock that I know of. It's a blank key. And I know that there's not a door on earth that this key will open. But it's a reminder to me that I have a heavenly home waiting for me, and that's what's most important. So every single time I pull out my key ring and I get ready to unlock my car or go into my house or open up my office or wherever, or whatever I'm doing, I see this key, I feel this key, and I'm reminded I'm living for something greater. I have a key on my key ring that doesn't open any lock on earth. And it's just something simple I did. I actually got this idea from a preacher friend of mine. But I encourage you to go and do it. I mean, this is a blank key will cost you less than a dollar, right? Put a key like this on your key ring. And every time you feel it, every time you see it, you think, oh, yeah, you'll be reminded. I'm looking for something greater than just what the other keys on my key ring open. 
Sometimes I need to step back and see everything this world's trying to sell me and realize that my value is not determined by my valuables. Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then number four, I think Acts tells us that we need to be a people who give joyfully. When we read about what the church did in Acts chapter 4, we see that their generosity was contagious. They didn't give out of obligation. They didn't give under compulsion. But they gave out of their love for Jesus and their love for those in need. And I think in this way, they reflected the heart of Jesus. You see, Jesus gave his very life away. And he didn't do it reluctantly. He didn't do it under compulsion. The Bible says he gave his life away joyfully. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Did you catch that? For the joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross. Really? I mean, when I think of the crucifixion, when I think of death by cross, the last word that comes to mind is the word joy. So, does that mean Jesus was, you know, singing and smiling as he was nailed to the cross? No, I don't think so. Really, crucifixion is anything but joyful. I think he very much suffered on the cross. But I think the joy that that's talking about is the joy that he knew it would bring us. He was willing to go to the cross. He didn't do so reluctantly. He did so because he knew what the cross would do for us. He endured the cross and generously gave his life because he knew what it would bring the world. And Jesus asks us to follow in his steps to follow his example, to generously give our lives, to generously give time to people, to generously give resources to people, to generously show love to people, to generously be kind to people, to be generous to people, even though it may cost us, so that we can share the love of Jesus and we can show them that there is a better life to be lived. When I was still a student in Bible college, I was asked to preach at this small little mountain church in Ap Appalachia. Now, if you're from there, you say Appalachia. Around here, people say Appalachia, I've noticed. I don't care how you say it, but people from there, they say Appalachia. And so I was asked to preach at this little church. And even though it was a little church, it was a healthy church. It was a growing church. And so I was honored to speak there, and the preacher there called me up and said, uh, hey, we want to let you know when you arrive um, on Sunday night. I was speaking there on a Sunday night. He said, just come meet me at the church, and I'm going to drive you to a couple in our, house, a couple in our church's house. And um, they're, I just want to warn you, these are his words, they're pretty poor, but they want to offer you a meal. And we've tried to talk them out of it because they don't have a whole lot, but they just refuse to be talked out of it. They want you to come and eat at their home. And so you may not get a lot to eat, and if you're still hungry after you're finished, he said, I'm going to have to run back to the church and get some things ready. I'll come back and pick you up from their house. But if you're still hungry, we'll go through a drive-thru or something. We'll pick you up something to eat. I was like, well, I don't know about that, but okay, that's fine. So I went to that couple's house that night, and he was right. I think by anybody's definition, this couple, they didn't have a whole lot. So we sat down to eat, and this is what they offered me. Fried turnips and a slice of bread. I kid you not. I don't like turnips. I, I don't like them at all, but that's what they offered me. And that night, guess what I ate? I ate fried turnips. They did fix me coffee, though, because they heard from somebody that I like coffee. So they fixed me a cup of coffee as well. But, you know, I didn't care what was on my plate. Because these people began to talk about Jesus. And as they did... My heart was full. These people were in love with Jesus. And they wanted everybody to know him. 
And they talked about reaching the next generation and they talked about how they want people in their community to know Jesus because there was a drug epidemic and they knew that the answer wasn't more government funding or anything else. The answer was Jesus Christ and they desperately wanted people to know Jesus. These people were in love with Jesus and they were willing to do whatever they possibly could so that other people could fall in love with him as well. When I was getting ready to leave, because it was time for the preacher to come pick me up, I shook the man's hand, man's, the man whose home I had just finished uh, being at. And when I shook his hand, there was a $5 bill in it. And he said, take this. And I was like, oh no, I can't take it. I knew that couple needed that $5 a lot more than I needed it. He said, no, take it. Use it towards your tuition. And I'm thinking, well, $5 won't go a whole lot when it comes to college tuition, but his heart was right. I was like, no, no, sir, really, I, I can't take this, I can't. And he said, I want you to take it. He said, it's a kingdom investment for me. Because he said, well, I'll know one day when you're out preaching at a church that I, I help support you. And he said, I can go without a meal or two or three. Five dollars, and he said, a meal or two or three. <laughs> if it means preparing a young man for ministry that can change people's lives for the sake of Jesus. I got in the car with the preacher and he said, you want to stop by a fast food place and get you a bite to eat? I said, no, I'm full. And he knew by my tone what I meant. He said, I thought you would be. So we went to church that night and we're standing in the back of the auditorium and the place is pretty full. It's a small building, but it's full. Every seat was almost taken. That preacher looked at me and he said, I want you to look at this crowd. He said, three-fourths of the people sitting here tonight are here because of that couple that you had a meal with tonight. He said, that couple, they'll do anything for people to show them the love of Jesus. They serve people, they give to people, they'll work for people, they'll do anything they possibly can in order to get people here. And three-fourths of the people who are here are here because of them, because they've either invited them or they've served them in some way. And people in this community want to be like them. He said, there are people in this church that have a little bit of money and they've offered to give that couple money. They won't take it. Instead, they say, give it to the church. The church needs it more than we do. Give it to the church. He said, they believe. They believe that what's most important is introducing people to Jesus. And they're willing to go without in order to advance his mission. And I remember hearing that that night and just thinking, man, at times I am so selfish. Because even though I'm not wealthy by some people's definition, I have a whole lot more than that couple. And how often I don't use my time, my resources, my energy to serve Christ like I should. When the church practices generosity, we're at our best. And as we celebrate this holiday weekend, Memorial Day, and we think about all the people who have sacrificed their lives so that we can live in this great country we live in, I think about the greatness of the country we live in, how blessed we are, how wealthy we are compared to other nations. And what comes to mind are Jesus' words in Luke 12, verse 48. To whom much is given, much will be required. We have been given so much. Let's not waste it, but let's be generous with it. And as we are, we will change the 918, we'll change Northeast Oklahoma, we will change the world for the sake of Jesus. In the earliest days of the church, a group of 120 grew to 3,000 to 5,000 and quickly changed the world. The same God who is working in them is working in us. Let's be generous like our Lord, and let's see what he does with it. Would you bow with me in prayer? 
Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made and this time we've had to meet together as your people. And we just pray that, Father, we have open hearts, that we will allow you to shape us and mold us into the people you want us to be. Father, we don't want to have hard hearts, hearts of stone, that just say, no, we're going to keep living as we want to live. That's not who we are. We are your people. So, Father, transform us. And as you transform us, we will transform the world. Thank you so much for Jesus, and through his name I pray. Amen.